A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 146 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, and your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website's second airborne division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on your own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herlman. And with me, like a Wookiee with a life debt, the EU guru himself, the count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. Uh, and yeah, I think that whole count of two continuities thing has about a year before it becomes a little more uh, impactful on my mind. We just passed the, gosh, the 17th anniversary of the Star Wars Timeline Gold. So officially next year, since I always use, I, don't, I never kept track of the exact date that we started the project or anything, or that I started the project. So I always just use my birthday because I knew it was, you know, latter half of the year or so. So next year, I will turn 36 on the day the Timeline Project officially turns 18, which would mean I've been doing it for literally half my life. And after that, it's the majority of my life. Right now, it's just a year shy. But uh, I think we're getting to the point where um, it's becoming synonymous with me being alive almost. There's got to be a Star Wars librarian character named after you. (laughs) Pretty good stuff around this side of things, though. Um... Of course, uh, the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable has gotten going. As of the time we're recording this, we've got episodes up for Spark of Rebellion. We've got one up for Droids in Distress. Uh, we record in just a couple of days for Fighter Flight, which is pretty cool. Um, on our side of things, things are kind of starting to shape up. Um, I've turned down the possibility of becoming the department chair for social studies at the place where I work because I was just hired on part-time doing a virtual coaching thing, helping new teachers become better teachers for our county. Uh, And I'm still waiting to hear on the possibility of a position that would have me finally able uh, to do online teaching full-time and be out of a school building. Uh, Meanwhile, my wife's got a new job. Granted, it's got her uh, working midnight to about eight most nights, which is why I may sound a little bit different here. You may hear cats meowing in the background because I'm in a different part of the apartment to record everything this time around. Um, but it seems like things are finally starting to, to shape up. She's recovering from the surgery, the gallbladder surgery and everything. So now it's just kind of crossing our fingers that this is the, uh, uh, the upward swing of everything at this point. And, uh, certainly seems like it, but I don't want to jinx it. You know? Yeah, I know how that goes all too well. Our haunted house is almost to the point where we can start putting people in it and, uh, have them come through and start peeing themselves. But, man, it's been a long process, one that I've luckily not had to be too involved in. I've uh, been so busy with other things with scouting and stuff that it's just been get there when you can and crank out what you can. It's a lot of long nights. I'm really looking forward to November and sleeping in. (laughs) I hear you. Is that – I guess we're kind of somewhat off topic here. Is that a volunteer thing or is that a paid gig or how does that work? Yeah, 
it's all volunteered. It's a, a group of us that were uh, together as scouts and then some of the pack. You know, it started out as a pack thing that we used to do. And then half the group moved on into Boy Scouts. And so we still get together to do it to fundraise for our scouts. So it's a private thing. We raise the funds and then we donate it to our pack and to our troop. Uh, you know, the boys that are going to camp and that kind of stuff. So it helps them get to camps and, and pays for all that kind of stuff. It's been very helpful. Last year we didn't have one because we couldn't find a building. And it was a lot of car washes all the way up until the very last minute. Lots of rummage sales. Uh, you know, we really, really struggled to make the funds for the kids to get there. We did it, but it literally was right up to the last week before we went to resident camp. Whereas normally this is done and over with. And by November, we know, you know, how much more money we're going to need. And, you know, it, it's it's a fun thing. And, you know, I, I, I look at it kind of like, you know, my doing this, you know, I mean, it's rewarding in the aspect of of what I'm getting out of it. You know, I love going and, and hearing people scream and go, I just peed my pants. Like I've made so many ladies pee their pants. And it's, and it's surprising because when you hear that phrase in a haunted house, it's always accompanied by giggling. And so like, like you're like, yeah, I did it. I got it. <laughs> you know? And then when you get the guys, like guys are always so macho. So getting them to jump at all is, is great because then they're always like, Oh, you got me, man. You got me. And, you know, we got some really good uh, gags this year, especially, you know, we, we like to uh, play with zombie stuff and Walking Dead is always prevalent in our haunted houses and stuff like that. But this year's we've got some serious uh, spooky stuff going on. I'll have to share some pictures down the road. Cool. Well, I guess uh, we'd be remiss also before we move on into our main topic. If we didn't give some congratulations here, uh, we did our long running uh, contest to win those copies of the San Diego Comic Con Exclusive Advance Readers Edition paperbacks of A New Dawn. We had three of them total to give away, two in Mark's possession, one in mine that was actually used uh, to work on the Star Wars Timeline Gold this year and everything. Our three winners turned out to be Brianna Wilson, James Fleming, and Drew Nick. So congratulations to the three of you. If you haven't got your books yet, they are going to be on their way very, very soon. Yes, congratulations, guys. You've taken your first step into a larger world. With lower sales numbers, apparently, which kind of uh, bodes ill at this point. I think there's a lot of, of trepidation. It, I have noticed a change. Uh, they did point out that uh, A New Dawn didn't quite get the sales numbers and the immediate bestseller thing that a lot of other Star Wars books have in the past. And it's unfortunate because, of course, you know this is the beginning of that new story group canon, but I wonder if that's part of the issue, that you have some fans who are like, man, I'm not going to read Star Wars anymore, I'm going to boycott this stuff. And at the same time, you might have the fact that since it is a new story based around Rebels, and Rebels hadn't premiered yet, there might be sort of this sense of, well, is this a kiddie thing or not? Uh, but in any event, it seems to have changed Del Rey's approach a little bit, because they just sent out an email saying that the... Uh, uh, early copies, the review copies of Tarkin are being sent out at this point. And usually they say that you're supposed to hold your reviews until the day it comes out unless you get special permission to actually post the review early. Now they're saying basically, hey, as soon as you can review, review that sucker, even if it's wow. before the release date, which makes me think there's a little bit of a uh, sort of a, I don't know, a skittishness at this point as to what to expect with what's Forthcoming. Although I would expect Tarkin to possibly have more of like that immediate draw, because instead of being based on characters from Rebels, which again, some people might shy away from because, oh, it's just a kiddie thing until they actually see the show, Tarkin, of course, is based on the A New Hope character, so in that sense, you probably have more of sort of an instant recognizability uh, when you look at the cover. But 
interesting that it seems like things are sort of shifting here. But I guess that's something we can deal mm-hmm. with when we start talking about those books on their own episodes. Well, I mean, it is something to talk about real quick in the aspect of, you know, you brought up the fact that there are people out there boycotting it. And, and that is something I have noticed across Facebook, especially, uh, you know, some on Twitter. But Facebook, there's a lot of groups out there that are, that are hardcore boycotting it. And, you know, as as an EU fan, as defender of the EU, I I don't quite buy that tactic. You know, I mean, if you want Legends, I'm of the tactic of buy the stuff they're getting and tell them, you know, hey, I want Legends, too. Uh, I, I think by not buying any Star Wars, we're going to end up hurting the IP. I mean, that just to me, it's like you have low sales on the new canon. Why even bother with Legends if the new canon's not going to sell? That's kind of the direction I see them going. It's like I would think that they would be happier having high sales and having everyone that, that bought one of their new books going, I want Legends too. Uh, I just, it's something that gets me very leery because there's a lot of backflash on the EU fans because of a lot of the ways they're going about trying to get Legends to continue. So it's one of those things like I, I don't I mean, seeing the sales being impacted, I know that there are people out there that are fist pumping that. And it's it's a shame to me. I, I really like the book's good. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's a shame that Legends became a separate universe to a degree. But at the same time, there's also a lot of good things that could come out of that. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think boycotting new stuff that you haven't even read yet just because you're a little, for lack of a better term, butthurt is the best way to go about it. I understand the feeling 100 percent. But I don't think that that's the best way to go about it. I think it's going to hurt Star Wars as a franchise in in a whole. I mean, you're dealing with Disney as a company that that looks at numbers that come from money. I mean, you know, the money drops. They're not going to want to invest in it anymore. So, you know, we may be shooting ourselves in the foot here. This is true. Uh, I guess two things on that before we move on. Uh, One, speaking of A New Dawn, I forgot to mention, uh, actually the day after the timeline anniversary of my birthday this year, uh, John Jackson Miller held an event at a comic shop, and it was at that event where he premiered that X-Wing Miniatures game scenario uh, that he and I developed a little while back to be based somewhat on the mechanics of a certain scene in A New Dawn. So hopefully, uh, by the time this episode comes out or shortly thereafter, I will have had a chance to get with him and see about actually posting that scenario on the website or somewhere so that those who are interested can check it out if you weren't able to attend the event. Uh, I guess the second thing, kind of jumping off what Mark said there, Mark, I'm I'm almost afraid to ask, so I won't, but it's a little creepy that you said that you can definitely sympathize uh, and know the feeling for those who have been butthurt. I really don't <laughs> want to know. Yeah, 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 we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we ponder Dark Horse Comics Rebel Heist by Matt Kine. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. And speaking of butthurt, um, wow. You know, it's one of these... This is one of these series that has the unfortunate distinction of being one of the last being put out by Dark Horse Comics. Dark Horse has had a pretty good track record over the years with Star Wars comics, but they have had some turds along the way. Uh, Tales from Mos Eisley, for instance. Not very good. 
Um, but it's one of these things where they have such a volume of material out there that, by and large, Dark Horse can be seen as doing very well with the Star Wars license and generally telling really good stories. The stories that aren't very good are at least sort of middling stories, until you get stuff like Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin and whatnot, where you're doing a facepalm and wondering how something saw print. But now, it's sort of like everything in the last year or two is being given a little bit more scrutiny because now we're looking at stories that are essentially the last things Dark Horse is putting out. We had Star Wars Legacy Volume 2, Star Wars Volume 2, Darth Maul's Son of Dathomir, and as the second-to-last series to launch from Dark Horse, we had this one. Star Wars Rebel Heist by Matt, I don't know if it's Kint or Kint. Either way, um, it is a four-issue series that tries to tell the story of... Basically, it's, it's a buyer's market type of thing. It's a, mm-hmm. hey, here's something or some things we know the Rebels must get their hands on at some point because we see it in a different story. Let's tell the story of how they got it, even though no one ever really asked, how did they get it? Uh, and in doing so, he tells this story as focusing on Han, then Leia, then Chewbacca, then Luke. But all the parts of the story are told from the perspective of someone else, some new character. Uh, Yan or Jan, a relatively new rebel. Saren, a red Twi'lek who's working with the rebels. Uh, a stormtrooper whose DNA holds a specific code to interface with the computer. And uh, a Bothan. And basically, in the process, it's not so much our regular heroes who change and grow. It's designed around these other characters, these side characters. But therein lies some of its failing. It's telling us a story we didn't need, in an era that's already way too chock full of stories anyway, with a story that's not all that interesting, told from the perspective of four characters we never see again and really are given no reason to care about. Not to mention that this story introduces one of the the greatest villains ever seen in Star Wars publishing from Dark Horse Comics. Um, if this were to have a trailer to it, it would have, the, you know, the big boulders, the, the, and the villain, boom, is, boom, near, it's, boom, here. And then you'd have the big explosion, and da-da, sentence fragments. It's like no one has ever taught Matt Kent about how sentences work. The man writes about 50 to 60% of the time in nothing but sentence fragments, and it gets real old real fast. For instance, not counting the opening crawl type thing, the first block of text in issue one, first time I'd ever been to Corellia, period. Sentence fragment. Couldn't believe I was there. Sentence fragment. So nervous. Sentence fragment. The city was huge. Holy hell, it's an actual sentence. And this was probably the worst neighborhood I'd ever seen. Another sentence fragment, you don't start it necessarily with and, that's a partial sentence. That's one uh, clause, I guess it's called. Not on Corellia. Sentence fragment. Worst in my life. Sentence fragment. But these were the coordinates they wrote down for me. Again, another sentence fragment. Someone needs to sit him down and explain to him the way sentences are supposed to work. Because it makes for some disjointed storytelling. If you have someone saying it out loud... You can tell the pauses, you can tell the breaths, you can tell they're sort of telling it sort of off the cuff. It sort of would make sense to have that many sentence fragments in it, uh, if you're writing dialogue, for instance. And I guess we're supposed to believe this is the person telling the story to the audience? 
but it makes for some jarring reading. And it was the first thing that jumped out at me with this, and that was all I was hearing from people reading the first issue whenever we were discussing it online as it came out. People were basically going, wow, sentence fragments everywhere. You can almost picture the little meme with Buzz Lightyear looking off <laughs> into space. Everywhere. Um, so we get a story that is kind of dull, an interesting perspective and way to tell it, but one that really we didn't need, with artwork that is kind of nyeh, not bad, not great, just kind of nyeh, and with writing that is grating to read through. Um, for this to be Dark Horse's second-to-last Star Wars comic series ever, it's a real letdown. Quite frankly, if we were supposed to give recommendations as to whether or not to read this as opposed to just discussing it, I would say skip it. Absolutely skip it. Save the money. Rebel Heist ain't worth it. You know, in some ways, I have to question if Dark Horse comics move away from long series going to the short arcs is what doomed all these small series that ended the EU, the Legends run. You know, I mean, they, they just seem like they just don't have enough. And, you know, like you said, like they, they feel like they're not needed. You know, a lot of that. And, and I question, is that where they got off. I mean, by, by switching to these smaller stories that really did limit them. Like you say, these characters are just like one and done. So you never see them again. There's none of that tie in and stuff that really was what made stories like legacy and stories like Knights of the old Republic really work for them. I mean, even smaller series like, like dark empire still, still worked, but there was more going on. Like, yeah, there's definitely some like, there was just like lack of detail here. Like they just wanted to tell a small little story. And in that regard, it worked like, I mean, it, it works on a lot of, uh, a lot of levels that just didn't click with me. I think for me, one of my biggest issues going in was my perceptions of the big three. Uh, you know, I mean, Luke at this time frame, I don't see him as this very super competent James Bond style agent. And this comic gave me that feel like every one of these people was a James Bond-like agent. And, you know, oh, wow, look, it's Bond. It's Han Solo. And then we get to Leia, and then it's like, oh, I got stuck with her. Oh, my gosh. She, what is she even doing here? She's not a rebel. And then, oh, wait, no, she is a rebel. Oh, my gosh, she's, like, one of the best rebels ever. Like, that really threw me off. But, again, I, I recognize that those were my perceptions of the characters. I really had a hard time seeing Luke as this great rebel hero beyond the fact that he blew up a Death Star. I mean, yeah, he blew up the Death Star. That makes you a rebel hero. But he's not the type of person in my mind that everyone's like, hey, give the ball to Luke. He's going to get it done. This this is that that he's still a bumbling idiot zone for me, which is one of the reasons why I hate going back to this zone. So, I mean, maybe, yeah, you know, advancing him forward will be great when we get into new canon stuff and they go and retread this type of stuff. But at this point, this stuff, Still falling into legends, it's something that I'm just like, really, I just don't want to go there again. So I had that that I was fighting through. But beyond the buyer's market angle, and that's I think that's probably the closest thing without without spoiling it. I mean, this really does have the buyer's market plot. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's it's the same same premise, just different element of the film that we're we're dealing with in that regard. And it works as a cool little story. It works from the perspective they put it at. But I don't know. Again, it gets back to that perceptions for me between that, the little bit of art where it occasionally gets a little funky. Like, I don't really care for how they do Han, especially a lot of the times. Chewbacca looks a little weird. And, and then, of course, you know, as we'll get later to the covers, there were so many different variants on the covers. I, I kept questioning, is all of this justified? You know, I mean, for this story, 
do we really need to have 12 versions of four comics covers? I mean, that didn't seem like something we needed to have. And for, like you say, a second to last series, it didn't have that, that pizzazz that, oof, I really wanted. You know, I want these last few go rounds of Dark Horse to have a hit. You know, I want them to feel like they had meaning. I want them to feel like, you know, yeah, there was some greatness here. Right now, Legends has all you're constantly hearing about is, well, there's a lot of mediocre stories. There's a lot of junk. And it's like, you would really like to have Dark Horse to go out with something that was just like a, a pinnacle story, you know, like, yeah, see, all the way to the end, they were telling really good stuff. So, I mean, in this regard, this tale, it kind of leaves me with the thought of, you know, maybe them switching from Dark Horse wasn't necessarily the worst thing they could do. I haven't seen what Marvel's going to do yet. But at the same time, there are a lot of Marvel comics I do enjoy. And there are, are a lot of angles of Marvel that I'm, I'm trepidatious about. But I couldn't see them doing something like this any worse than this. I could see them do some things better than this. Um, the lack of the villain, I mean, the villain in this case was just the Empire and... While that worked, the way it was told, there were times where I was kind of like, is this even going to connect? By the time we get to issue three, it starts to connect. And then by the time you get to issue four, you realize they pulled a Quentin Tarantino on us. And that issue one and issue four kind of overlap and everything falls in between it. So at that point, by the time I got to issue four, I was like, okay, the story's come back around. I'm, I'm back on point. But in issue three, I started to get really bored. I I, I don't know. Some about Chewbacca's and, and the, I don't know, the speciesist nature of the stormtrooper something about that issue i started to disconnect i wasn't quite enjoying it as much and then there was a, a jump in things going from three to four where it was kind of like wait what's going on with chewy and, and a whole scene happened off off script and while that works there are times where i'm just like really we couldn't just slip that in there like i mean it's a comic you could have done it in one panel two panels even i i don't know so i went back and forth with that stuff but i do recognize that most of my issues with this are a lot of my own perceptions going in um, I, I have a hard time putting it very high because of that, but at the same time, I can't really ding it too hard. I would say this is a, a good run of the mill story for you. And I would say as harsh as I am on this series, that it is part of a, a context issue here, context in terms of the storytelling era, context in terms of it being one of many, 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 many dark horse comics at this point. Um, if this Oddly enough, if this were to have been a story group canon story, something released later, that would be one of the first stories with these characters in this era, telling us how they got what they get within this story, uh, telling it the way that it does with no real connections to anything else, and with these characters are essentially throwaway characters as the, the storytellers, I think it probably would have worked better. But in context with the Legends continuity, it absolutely falls flat. Yeah, I could see that. That's a, that's a very fair assessment. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, story summary time. These should go extremely quickly. Uh, issue number one takes the perspective of a relatively young rebel named Jan or Jan, depends on how you're going to pronounce it here, uh, and basically he's on a mission on Corellia. Turns out he's there to meet Han Solo. So he meets amid essentially a, uh, a an attack on him. Um, he's recognized as a rebel and he's attacked and it's Han that steps in and saves the day. 
uh, amidst a very long monologue from the character talking about his perceptions of Han Solo. He and Han wind up in a big uh, speeder chase, only to wind up actually eluding the Imperials, which isn't what they actually wanted. Instead, someone, we will later find it's Luke, has to point the Imperials back towards them so they can then escape into space in a ship that's not the Millennium Falcon so that it doesn't get damaged or taken or anything like that, and they purposely let themselves get captured. Jen doesn't know this, but of course Han does. He's the one essentially leading this mission, and Jan apparently is there uh, to lend credibility, I guess, to it all, to the fact that this really is a capture, it's not some kind of setup. And Han makes sure once they are captured and, and brought to the mess hall of this Imperial building, well, frankly, there's not a lot of security, he gives them a reason to have to put him into higher security uh, by accosting some of the guards and letting himself be essentially recaptured, so to speak, so that Han winds up locked up in a highly secure cell, or what passes as highly secure at the particular base that he's on, and Jan winds up spilling his guts to the Imperial interrogators, and we find out that essentially... That is where the narration of this issue has come from, his testimony about how, frankly, Han is insane. Uh, he's out for himself, he's out for death and glory. Um, this man is one of the most dangerous men he's ever met in the galaxy, but certainly not the heroic Han that we're used to. We end the issue with Han beaten up and bloodied and in his cell. You know, okay, at this point, that was a cool twist. But once I got to the end of the comic and I come back to it, I, I question, did Han know that this guy was going to turn on him the whole time? Or did that just did that just get Han an extra swooping? <laughs> yeah, of all the things that could have gone wrong in this mission, having Jan along seems like it was a wild card they really didn't need. Again, unless he was there to sell the idea that this was a legit capture. We'll find that basically Han needed to be captured to be at this particular base to steal what they need to steal. But in doing so, he really has essentially gotten himself captured because it's not until issue number four that he has what he needs to be able to actually escape from his cell and steal what needs to be stolen. I mean, it's Rebel Heist. It is supposedly a caper tale akin to scoundrels, just not as easy to follow and not as interesting. Mm. Uh, I do like the fact that we're getting an outside view on these characters. I don't necessarily like the viewpoint per se. Yeah. But it is kind of interesting that we're seeing how just sort of a regular run-of-the-mill rebel recruit would view Han Solo. And how if you look at Han's actions a lot of times without knowing the context and without knowing uh, the broader plan, yeah, he is a reckless guy. Yeah, he is a scoundrel. Yes, he is the kind who would shoot Greedo first or... Not, as the case may be, uh, and pay for the mess. Uh, it's an interesting twist on it. But at the same time, as critical as he is of Han going through and the fact that Han is one of our heroic characters we followed in this saga for years, I think that's something that's going to turn folks off to this first issue because they're going to grow to dislike Jan because mm -hmm. of his perspective on Han. Um, like, You're talking about my friend, man, kind of thing. Uh <laughs> I don't know. The, the first issue set the tone for the series. Yeah. But at the same time, I remember at the end of the first issue really hoping that when we switched perspectives, it wouldn't be Jan involved in it anymore. There would be someone with a, if not a more positive perspective, then a perspective that didn't make me want to punch him in the face. Yeah. 
Well, there are some interesting things that Jan come up with. Like they're being chased. He goes, this man is a tactical genius as a master of improvisation. And at that moment, the, the speeder that's chasing him gets hit by another ship. And Han's like, you got to be kidding me. We got a problem. Lost my tail. Problem? What's he talking about? He just single-handedly took out an Imperial strike team. And I, I agree with you on the aspect of how it sets it up. I mean, I, I was really curious. And I love the last panel. It's got Han all handcuffed. He's like leaned against uh, the wall of the cell. And he's all bloody. You don't see enough of his face. But honestly, I think for me, with the art style, that captured Han the most out of all the panels in this. I mean, Han, he looked like Han at times, but there were other times he didn't look like himself very much at all. But yeah, the perspective, I think that that's one of the things I had a hard time with, was each one of the perspectives had something about them that I didn't quite dig. I did like with Jan, though, how how it started out, he was looking at Han, like how you were saying, how everybody looks at Han. He's our guy, he's our go-to guy, he's our hero, he's a legend, you know, and he slowly, through not knowing what's going on, is thinking Han's completely crazy. So that works overall when I look back on it. But it, ge it gets me to stop and question again. Like, you know, were they planning on him selling them out? Like, or, or, or did that just get Han beat up for fun? I mean, like that, that was a, that was a twist that could have seriously hampered the entire plot of everything right there was having that guy do that with, with Jan turning on them like that. He could have spilled some serious beans. I mean, granted, obviously he didn't know too much cause he was new to the rebellion, but it was one of those things where I don't know if I would be putting Han, Luke, Leia, and Chewie in a mission with somebody that was going to do that. I mean, it, that and that's where I get it's like at one moment there's all these references to how great these guys all are to the to the rebellion and stuff like that. And I question how often that opinion would get through to everyone. I mean, I know from Legend's standpoint, that's always been the big thing, but Moving forward, canon later, we're not going to be seeing that so much. So I, I, I'm like, do I want to continue to see that moving forward? I know that that's been a, a prevalent theme in Legends that, you know, these guys were always the big ones. They were always leaders in the rebellion and all that. They always had critical position spots and stuff. But like Luke, especially like this one, like Luke's like, he, he reminds me more of Return of the Jedi Luke than he does uh, Empire Strikes Back Luke, or especially New Hope Luke. Although this is set closer to Empire Strikes Back, where Luke is a little more confident. But he seemed to be more like the one in charge. Like, he was the guy to bail them all out. And that that struck me as odd. Like, I, I that didn't quite line up with my perception of Luke at this point. So in panel one, there's like this, this Yoda-looking, orc-looking guy on the side. And... I'm just looking at him thinking like, okay, is this Yoda's species and this is just a tall one or is Yoda like a dwarf? Like that guy d totally has like a Yoda-esque appearance to him, although he does look like a classic orc from uh, Lord of the Rings. That is the artist playing fast and loose, I guess, not going for a species we've seen before. I don't think it's a species we've seen before, but really, how could you tell? If you can't tell who Han is half the time in the artwork, I doubt much detail is being paid to these you know, background characters. Yeah. Although another background character I wanted to point out too was the uh, alien strippers inside the bar. Yikes! My contact was supposed to be in here. No idea who he was. Supposed to know him on site, I guess. I'll just play it cool. Tried not to be nervous or show it anyway. Or, uh, you know, just another low life coming in to get a drink. And oh, oh, no. Are those dancers? <laughs> like, one looks like a millipede and the other one, like, looks like part octopus, part skull, like... <laughs> Really weird looking, but I thought it was kind of interesting just his reaction to the dancers on the poles. And that makes a good transition. As we move into issue number two, which of course 
has a different perspective. In this case, our perspective is a rebel spy on Fetisir, a red-skinned Twi'lek, who of course, because she's female, is an exotic dancer as her cover. Um, she is there and finds out that her cover is blown and needs to get the heck off of Fetisir. Turns out the rebel contact that is sent to get her out of there is Leia. And she's a little bit freaked out about the fact that it's Leia. Like, wow, she's a princess? Really? As you were saying earlier, the idea that this, you know, this person has a reputation for being a rebel, but she's also sort of a debutante, so can she really get me out of this? Is she really a hardcore rebel agent, or is she way out of her league here, essentially? Uh, they wind up on a mission in which uh, Leia essentially enlists Saren to help her, Leia takes this sort of jetpack thing from a roof while being covered by Saren, who's acting as a sniper, and gets into this uh, shindig, so to speak, in which she's able to meet a big-time drug dealer. And it is while on these grounds with this big-time drug dealer to whom she has ingratiated herself that she makes her way into this secret area where she's supposed to be stealing some Imperial codes. Only it turns out that it's not actually codes that she's stealing. She enters the room to find a stormtrooper, and it is within his DNA, his genetic code, that the code she's looking for has been implanted or that has been used for the code. They never quite make that clear. It makes it sound as though they've put this code into his DNA by somehow reshaping it, as opposed to just using his DNA to be the thing that unlocks it. Which I would assume means, and based on the look of the character, that this stormtrooper is just a regular stormtrooper, not a clone, because then in theory the DNA would be all over the place because it's the same DNA for all these different clones. So she has to help this stormtrooper escape because he is a living code. Uh, she manages to get him into some black stormtrooper armor. She tears up her own Padme-looking costume to look more almost like a cross between a nun and a, a street person and winds up working with Saren to get him off the planet. Eventually, Leia winds up allowing herself to be captured by Imperials in order to let Saren get this unnamed stormtrooper to safety, so that then she can send the stormtrooper with her sister, unless she's just saying sister, you know, like, hey, sister, but I think it's actually her sister, who is a white or light blue Twi'lek, uh, to get him off the planet. Uh, once they are into space, we learn that the next contact for this mysterious unnamed genetic code key stormtrooper is none other than... Chewbacca. And, of course, by this point, Leia's determination and willing to sacrifice herself have won over Saren's admiration. Well, the handoff to Chewie at this point, that's when I started to kind of get the bigger picture of what was going on with the story. I mean, at this point, I kind of thought we were just going to get throw off, throw off, throw off, and was questioning, like, how is this going to tie together? When we see Chewie be the handoff there, I'm like, uh, okay, so, okay, Luke's going to probably come after Chewie. I'm getting that. The sister angle, too, was something that I questioned as well. Uh, you know, is it something like that? Is it truly that they're actually blood sisters? Because she goes, this is my Twi'lek sister. And I'm just like, hmm, is that like like a cultural thing? Like, you know, how, how some people are like brother and sister, you know. And So I'm like, okay, you know, that, that works in either direction. But it did make me stop a question like, okay, are they? Because that character, one of the cool things I liked about it was that she pointed out the fact that being a red-skinned Twi'lek was, made her even rarer than rare. So that was cool. So it was something I didn't know, and it was a cool little tidbit, and it added to the whole skin color thing. 
So the idea that you know you could have a red skin sister with the other skin color, I, I just thought that was kind of interesting. It was something about the species that I hadn't thought of. Like you know, you could have all sorts of skin colors. Was it one of those things where you know, like a, a blue skin Twilight could have a white skin baby or a red skin baby? Apparently, the red skin thing seems like that's something like albino. You know, like anybody can have an albino kid. You know, well. So, so it was just, you know, a little tiny tidbit, something that got my brain kind of ramped off and I got off onto a little side tangent. I thought it was cool. But the one thing with Leia's character through this arc that I kept slowly coming to was, okay, at the beginning, Saren brings her down in my eyes and I didn't care for that. It was like, well, wait, you know, Leia should be somewhere up in the, in the rebellion. Like that to me, like that wouldn't have been, oh no, that would have been like, oh yeah, I, not only do I got a rebel, I got one of the leaders. She's the only one out of everybody that I actually envision in a sp- position of leadership from the big four. I will, I will throw Chewie in there as the big four. And it seems like, you know, they're all put in this role. But Leia's the one that I always envision in that role. And watching her through this comic, it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm watching James Bond. And I'm not really watching Leia Organa in episode four. So I, I have a real hard time with that as to, you know, what I'm supposed to be expecting from Leia at this point. I, I'm used to what I got in the early legend stuff, her being the rebel spy, but mainly being a senator and doing, you know, political things and kind of running things from behind the scenes. But now they're putting her more and more into the action. And while I don't have an issue with that, I try to wrap my head around that. And so from the legend standpoint, you know, that's something that, that's going to perplex me. But at the same time, it's something in the new canon stuff as stuff moves forward. I will look forward to what they do with that character because while I felt like they were trying to do that with this, there were all those earlier legend stereotypes in place that I could not break around. Whereas with new stuff moving forward, that won't be the case. They could take Leia, put her in a fighter pilot and make her that way. And she could be that way hundred percent of the time. And I could accept that. So there were aspects of her character that, that left me questioning. But again, I recognized that that was my perceptions going in that were conflicting with what the writer was presenting. So it wasn't something that was terrible, but it was something that stopped me from enjoying it. And it took me out of the moment. But again, it wasn't until I got done with the comic and came back and saw how it all interlaced that I really got a lot more appreciation for what the writer did with everything. I did not appreciate it. My first read through, it wasn't until you get to the final you know, issue and then it's all starting to tie together. Then you're like, Oh, okay. But reading them as singles spread out over weeks at a time, I wasn't feeling it. I mean, I remember feeling like this was a pretty meh story overall when it was all said and done. But on the reread, I was like, oh, that laced together pretty well. Yeah, I mean, the this particular issue, uh, I think this worked better than the first, in a sense. It had that doubt for Leia uh, that seemed like it wasn't derision. It was just doubt. Uh, and that seemed like it was a little more realistic. I guess is a way to put it, than what we got back in the first issue. Saren mm. seemed like a competent individual who was just in a bad position, as opposed to Jan, who seemed like he was a weird addition to the team that really probably shouldn't have been there. In this case, uh, Saren's situation winds up being something that puts her in the right place to be able to help Leia. Yes, Leia does come off as sort of the James Bond figure here, but she is the more experienced rebel from the four that we get a perspective on in this case. So it sort of worked for me, although it did seem a little bit, you know, kind of a a little bit too stealthy, a little too James Bond at some points. But then again, this is somewhat after, it seems, her being this crazy ace starfighter pilot now, thanks to Star Wars Volume 2, 
So at this point, Leia can pretty much do anything. She's the superhero of all of them. Um, so in that sense, it did work. The fact that she was willing to essentially sacrifice herself for them, again, also did work. I think one of the things, though, with this is the same thing that we get with things like Death Troopers. And it's that lack of peril. You know, in Death Troopers, we knew Han and Chewie, even though they were in the story, nothing bad's going to happen to them because it's Han and Chewie. And in this case, we've got Han's in prison. Now Leia's been taken away to custody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and? Because it's Han and Leia. Um, Any sense of peril isn't there. The peril is there for these new characters that they're trying so hard through the narration to get us to care about. And so far, we really haven't had a chance to care too much about either of them, but at least it's easier to care about Saren, I think, uh, than about Jan. They're leaning closer to the right direction in this issue than in the first, but still haven't quite hit the mark yet. Um, the idea of this genetic code being the code that Leia's looking for, that was an interesting twist. The fact that she had to go in basically posing as a drug dealer, another interesting twist. Although you would think there would be, you know, scans and stuff to figure out who she is and whatnot. Um, I don't know. It's still not quite working for me at this point when I was reading the individual issues. But it did give me a little bit more hope for the series that felt dashed almost immediately back with issue number one. At this point, I'm wary in my reading, but I'm curious to see where they go with issue three as to whether or not this is a series that can redeem itself. No, real good point there. I mean, yeah, by the time the second one was done, I was feeling hopeful. Third one, though, as we walk into this one, that was the one that really made me start to doubt the whole series. I was like, I don't know about this. Fourth one, though, brought it back. But as we get into this third one, I was a little more trepidatious. That's right, which moves us into three. Another perspective, this time characters that we have met. The perspective is on Chewbacca. And the person's perspective is coming from the stormtrooper whose genetic code is that key. So we just met him in the previous issue. Now we get to know a little bit more about him, which is kind of interesting because there wasn't that kind of connection between uh, Jan and Saren. Now we've got the connection of the stormtrooper from the one story becoming the point of view character for the, the third. So basically their ship, which looks a lot like the Moldy Crow to an extent, winds up going to the planet they're trying to get to only to wind up being shot down uh, by these lizard people, one of many lizard races. I'm sure it's supposed to be probably the guy, uh, the, the species from the old uh, uh, web, or not web strips, the uh, newspaper strips before they became web strips. Um, but as they crash, it turns out that the stormtrooper lives, but Saren's sister dies. And if you have this comic, I want you to take a look at the third page, the first panel, and look at Saren's sister dead in that cockpit. She died so horribly, you can't really recognize her face. Um, <laughs> it looks like it's, I don't know, it, her face has become an emoticon, or an emoji, yes! I think. Yes. <laughs> it's a couple of dashes and a, an underscore or something. Uh, in any event, he's about to be taken into custody or killed. Chewbacca shows up, he's been waiting for him, and saves the day. Uh, they take this speciesist stormtrooper on a journey through other uh, alien strongholds, so to speak, as uh, Chewbacca seeks aid from a Gamorrean, eventually finds out where they need to go. It's this castle, essentially, where this big computer system is being housed and being protected by the Empire. Uh, they make their way in through the sewers and fight this sea creature octopus-looking thing, 
that Chewbacca manages to best to save both of them. They make their way inside to find a woman with sort of that cybernetic lawbot-looking thing on her head, surrounded by stormtroopers. Uh, they jump in, supposedly saving her, only, it's a trap! And when she finally takes them to the room where you can get access to this computer mainframe they're trying to get to, um, yes, it is indeed a trap. They step on, step on the wrong floor panels, they get attacked by stormtroopers that she has brought, uh, you know, hurry, get them, and such. But somehow, while they're in this computer lab thing, um, he basically, the stormtrooper, puts his hands near the screen. There's this odd orange energy that seems to swirl around his hands, but it's like it's scanning his DNA, I guess? and allows him access to the computer system. This was the reason they rescued him and got him to the planet in the first place, to access this computer system. Only Chewie seems to know what they're looking for. Um, he goes into the computer system and sends a transmission with an unlock code, essentially, to Han, who's got this little, like, thumb-sized, uh, uh, like, communicator-looking device that has a holographic projection over it that gives him the necessary codes he's going to need to get himself out of the cell that he's in. We also see a brief shot of Leia in her cell, last that we saw her. And it says, you know, this Wookiee was motivated by loyalty and friendship, and it made me realize whoever calls Chewbacca a friend is a hell of a lucky guy. But at this point, I'm sitting back thinking, okay, so Han did seem like he let himself get captured, and he must have, and they must have known this, because this doesn't seem like it's Chewbacca winging it to get the codes necessary to free Han. Otherwise, why would they have gone through the trouble of rescuing the Stormtrooper? Getting these codes to free Han must have been part of the plan to begin with, which makes you start wondering what was the plan, what was the goal, why did they let Han get captured back in the first issue to begin with? With Leia imprisoned, there's the question, wait a second, he sent the codes to Han, is he supposed to send them to Leia too? Because she's in custody as well. And we end the issue with Chewie and the Stormtrooper being put into an underground dungeon-type cell with a huge angry Rancor that's about to eat them. A Rancor we will learn in issue 4 is named, I kid you not, Pooches. Um, so again, we end the issue with all three of these characters now in custody in some form or another. Jan's out of the story to an extent. He's being held at the, Imper the uh, Imperial base with Han. Saren is completely out of the story at this point, and the Stormtrooper is now in peril with Chewie, about to be attacked by a Rancor. We expect this great action sequence of how are they going to save themselves from the Rancor in the next issue. We will not get it. But at least at this point, it seems like the plot's moving along, and we guess Han's maybe going to free himself or something? And we've got one issue to go to finally bring it all together and give us the story uh, with the perspective on Luke. At this point, I'm not really buying that we're going to be able to see a satisfactory conclusion within mm -hmm. just one issue. Not that this issue was a bad one. I like the perspective of seeing this species of Stormtrooper kind of coming to his senses when it comes to respecting those of other species, including Chewbacca not being a brute but being uh, a thoughtful rebel. But again, it hasn't drawn me in at this point. I'm not particularly liking the Stormtrooper character at this point, and I'm really doubtful they're going to be able to pull off a final issue that manages to save this story. Again, back when I was reading these as individual issues. 
Yeah, that two-panel spread that you were talking about right there before the end, I'll get back to that. That's where I really got confused. I did find, though, that this issue had a good way of just putting the Stormtrooper out there. But I question, you know, again, was it needed? I mean, you know, yeah, they, they talk about, you know, him seeing it as an animal. You know, I've, I feel ridiculous following this animal around, but what choice do I have? I turned on the Empire. These rebels are now my only friends in the galaxy now. And it seems like this thing has the locals pretty much intimidated. I let it lead me where I need to go. And as he goes, you know, he starts to realize that it, it's more than just the thing. You know, he's like, this was not an animal. This was not an overgrown dog trained to perform. And he starts to fall down one of the pits and Chewie whips around and grabs onto his hand and saves him. This was a living being named Chewbacca. Someone motivated by the same things as me. And that's when they get in. But when they get to that two panel spread that you talk about how the thing came out and all that stuff like this, I think is supposed to be that moment where everything starts to click. And for me, this is where everything falls apart. I mean, I, I start questioning things more because of this. Like, I thought the guy's DNA code originally was was the code they sent to Han. So now I'm like, OK, oh, wait, no, his code was used to get into this machine to send a transmission to Han. Why couldn't they just got anything else to send the transmission to Han? Why do they have to go to this elaborate ruse to go to this one specific machine that could only be keyed by this guy's specific DNA to send a code to open a door to Han? Like that just that, that seems just, plus you've got Leia in prison now. Like that just seems like a really stupid thing to do if these people are as legends has them leaders of the rebellion. Like that just that's that's a fundamental issue I'm having with this is that does not to me make sense at all. But again, that could just all be because of my own perceptions of legends and, and what I've read from stuff before. But I cannot envision them putting these leaders, especially Leia and Han, in, uh, mainly Leia, especially though. I mean, granted, that was a last minute thing, but they plan to put Han in the prison from the start. It's like, man, you really taken a chance there that they didn't just off him. I mean, you know, Imperial Bounty. Dead or alive, those kind of things. Like, you know, I mean, they must have been paying attention. That, oh, well, Han's wanted alive right now. Let's put him in there. I mean, <laughs> so that one, like, yeah, it's supposed to be like this great moment where everything comes together. And for me, it really fell apart. And I was really hoping and praying that when we got into issue four, it was going to give us something more. And I think the whole Rancor scene being skipped over really set me off in my anger. Like, oh, I wanted to see that. And the way they went about it was just so let down. <laughs> Yeah, it makes me wonder if at this point in the story, really, would Han have let himself be captured this way? What is up with the bounty from Jabba the Hutt? Remember that bounty hunter they meet at Ord Mantell, which thankfully didn't get worked into this story like it's worked into damn near every story around this time, it seems like, uh, or at least of, of the throwaway stories of this particular era. Uh, he really was going to let himself get captured. They didn't immediately say, hey, there's a bounty on this guy, not just from the Empire, but from Jabba the Hutt. Let's make some easy credits. Or when Leia gets captured, she isn't immediately transferred or put into some type of, type of situation in which she can't get out of it because it's freaking Leia Organa. Uh, it seems odd that these are the heroes that would be put into this situation instead of other more trained undercover type agents. Uh, I also have to say that it does seem like a very convoluted process, like you were saying to be able to get what it is that they want when they could just, you know, take a rebel force in, attack the base, and steal the ship holding what they want, as we'll find is the target in issue number four. It's very much, I don't know, uh, I would say it's akin to, you ever played the game Mousetrap before? 
on that Rube yeah. Goldberg style uh, process of, you know, well, uh, we're going to capture this mouse, right? But the way we're going to capture it is this ball's going to move down this little trap and fall and hit the lever and turn over this pulley and everything's going to go clink, clink, clink. And after 20 minutes of all kinds of stuff going off and moving uh, in tandem, finally this trap falls down and boom, you've caught the rat. When really, you could have stood there next to the cheese with a shotgun and killed <laughs> the rat, right? Uh, it's way more convoluted of a process than it really needed to be. And it makes the story into one where you're wondering about all these different pieces and how they're moving in tandem and how it is going to wind up giving them the outcome that they need to get. But taken back from a practical standpoint, it seems like the Rebellion's going through a lot of hoops and taking a lot of risks for something that could have been done in a much more simple fashion. Um, I don't know. You know, it just seems as though this was the logic behind the story, the foundational logic of making this story happen wasn't sound. And maybe that's what makes the entire story a little tougher to swallow overall. I don't know. It just something about it just never quite worked for me. Even as we get to issue number four, when it kind of pulls things together, it still is like, yeah, not buying it. You almost wonder if they needed one more issue, one before Han where it's from 3PO and R2's point of view, where they're watching this get set up to give you a little bit more behind it. You know, like, don't tell you the details, but, well, we need to get the certain code, so we need Han in position, you know, like, use code phrases that, that we would have an idea of what's coming, but not give it too much. You know, well, Han needs to be in this position, so when Chewie does this, and there's a reason why we have to go through this system, because we have to override or go around this other system, like, there was something, there was a context missing for sure. Or do the stereotypical thing and give us an, an opening and a closing that bookends this story of a couple characters playing the Star Wars equivalent of chess. Yeah. And one of them checkmating the other to give us that sense from the get-go. Don't worry, these are all calculated moves. It's not just the Empire that moves with calculation. The Rebels are going to be able to pull this off because they are master strategists and such. But you don't really get that sense here until the end, in which some cases still seem like they were left to chance. Which brings us to issue four. This one shifts the perspective to a Bothan, and the Bothan's name is Elak, E-L-L-A-K. He is an Imperial Bothan spy, and his perspective in this case is going to be on Luke. We go back to around the time of issue number one, and we see Luke and the Bothan, who's essentially chasing him and keeping an eye on him, taking part in trying to help Han and Yan, or Jan, during their escape. Turns out it is Luke that whenever they lose the Imperials, who sets the Imperials back on them because they need to get captured. It looks like they were just too good in their escape. Turns out also that at least some of Leia's part of the story was taking place in parallel to this, because Luke goes very quickly to Fetisir, where Leia has been captured, as we saw back in issue two, and Luke just jumps out with his lightsaber and manages to save her. She must be being moved from her cell to somewhere else, because we already saw her languishing in the cell in the last issue. Luke manages to save her, they take a ship, and get themselves off the planet. Uh, they then head for the planet, with the castle and everything, where we last saw Chewie and the Stormtrooper, who at this point, from what I can tell, still doesn't have a name. Uh, and this is where we jump into the situation, and oh, that uh, Rancor that was threatening them at the end of the previous issue, where we see a severed Rancor arm, 
and we see Chewie basically standing with the big old axe-looking thing uh, over the head of the Rancor. Uh, and we have the Stormtrooper saying, that was, that was unbelievable. Of course, we didn't get to see any of that unbelievable stuff, which is something we've criticized in Star Wars stories before, building up to some kind of climactic moment that then we don't get to see that has to happen off-panel. And there's like, yeah, it was awesome, wasn't it? Well, we wouldn't know as the audience, would we? Uh, Luke and Leia then get inside, uh, manage to, uh, well, I guess Luke does, manage to take out the people that are holding them, including the woman with the little Lobot-looking thing on her head, and he gets Chewie and the Stormtrooper back to their waiting ship where Leia's there, and they take off and head out. Uh, they're heading for the base that Han and Jan were taken to. Because Han and Jan, now thanks to the code that was sent to Han, thankfully, I guess when they patted him down and searched him and took his stuff, they didn't take the little holographic device. Otherwise, where did he hide it? And do we really want to know? Is there such a thing as a, a hologram emitter suppository? Uh, they have freed themselves from their cell at this relatively low security base, take out the stormtroopers holding them, get inside the hangar, and steal a cargo ship that thankfully still has aboard their target this entire time. Eventually, they are joined in space by the ship flown by Luke and Leia with Chewie and the Stormtrooper aboard, and it turns out that the Bothan, Elak, is aboard as well, and he's holding a thermal detonator ready to kill them all. Only seeing Luke in action, seeing his heroism, has caused him to change sides, essentially, and the Bothan simply turns off the thermal detonator and surrenders. He will find himself, apparently, a member of the Rebel Alliance soon. We bring this all together with our heroes down on the surface of a planet where they've landed, and they're discussing the mission. And Han basically asks, you know, what was all this for? You know, I thought we were stealing something important, a secret weapon or crates full of Imperial credits or something. You know, what is it that we've got? And we see an image of what they've stolen from inside the cargo bay, and it's the power generators that are going to be used for the Rebel base on Hoth. Bum, bum, bum! And we essentially get what amounts to some quick flash-forwards to see where our characters are going to end up. We see the power generators actually installed on Hoth. We see Jan talking to some people in a bar about how the Empire is just going to chew you up and spit you out. The Rebellion is where it's at. We see Saren again flirting with an Imperial officer to try to get in with him as part of her role as a spy. We see the Stormtrooper fighting alongside Rebels. And we see Elak the Bothan spotting an image on a computer screen of the Death Star 2 as it's in construction. So we have this sense of, see, see, it all comes together. It all hinges on Luke doing his part and Han, he got himself captured so they can get to the base where they know this thing is going to be, this power source is going to be. So they're going to steal the power source. That was the entire point. Again, very much like buyer's market. You know, here they are stealing a piece of technology. We never questioned how they got before, but now we have the story of how they got it. And we end with this sense that all these minor characters that we just ran into throughout these stories, Jan, Saren, the Stormtrooper, Elak, uh, they will go to play roles in the Rebellion, albeit untold stories, in the future. And in that sense, I guess it was Matt Kent trying to give this story a weight that it otherwise didn't have. To give these characters who are throwaway characters a sense that they're part of something bigger. Not only is this the story of how they got the power generators, see, that was the point, 
again, like the point of Buyer's Market about the AT-ATs underneath uh, Nomad Station on Naklan from the Thrawn trilogy here. Um, here is how they got the power generators, and not only that, but maybe this is the first Bothan to run into the Death Star 2 plans that are going to set off events that we know of, of course, in Shadows of the Empire that will eventually lead to the Rebels finding out about it and going after it and falling into the Emperor's trap in Return of the Jedi. So it winds up being a story that we can't necessarily say was pointless, because it does get the Rebels these things and this information that they needed, that they'll need in the future. But the Death Star 2 part of it is a story that's already been told, and the power generators for Hoth is a story that really didn't need to be told. It's kind of like, I can't remember if it was Allegiance or Choices of One, I guess it was Choices of One that had the, hey look, here's how the Rebels got some of their snowspeeders thing that was a part of that story that made sense in the time period, but at the same time, you were kind of like, yeah, whatever. It's not like I ever wonder where they got them from before. And the whole mm -hmm. thrust of this story is, here's how they get the power generators. And that just, again, makes it a lot like buyer's market, because I don't think that's something we've ever really questioned or wondered. And to say, here's how they got this thing you never cared about how they got, makes this story, while tying into the broader narrative, yes, not something where the impact feels as impactful, I think, as they meant for it to feel. No, you, you definitely nailed a lot of themes there. Uh, the last scene with the boss and doing the oh no, you know, I it played to me. I, I was like, okay, there's relevance for the character. Without that scene, though, the whole throwing him in there would have been kind of pointless. I was questioning, you know, why the Empire had a boss, and I was like, wait, shouldn't the Bossons be on the one side? But, you know, equal opportunity and all that. I could see a Bosson playing both sides of the fence. So that worked. But, yeah, seeing him at the end being the one to stumble across it was like, okay, so, okay, now that's how they got that connection. All right. So I did like the, the way that they did the tying of the dots, but this is the thing. Moving forward, if they ever come back and do any stories with Legends, this is the kind of story I would hope they do not tell. Basically, this was a story that was not needed. You know, I, I, I've been saying, you know, if they continue Legends, I would love to see one book at a time go back and wrap up, you know, plot holes, you know, points that, that were left open, stories that, that were forgotten about, things of that nature. You know, in, in uh, Legacy Era, you've got Hondo Carr chasing after Mandalorians, uh, you know, uh, in... The uh, Fate of the Jedi, Legacy of the Force era, you've got them chasing the uh, the Dagger of Mortis. You've got Jaina about to go into the Imperial Knights, starting up that. You've got Kakruk joining Luke's Order. You've got little stories like that, that things that have happened. Uh, Death Troopers, Han and, and Chewie lose the Falcon at the end of it. When did they get it back? Little things like that, to me, would be better kind of throw-off stories in this regard than this one was. Because like you said, you know... The, the, the generators wasn't something that we were like, wait, where did they get that? I just assumed they bought it or they stole it or something. Well, hey, they stole it. I, I could have filled that in any of a hundred different ways. I didn't need to necessarily know that one. There are other legend stories out there that I would have much rather they have told at the end of their hurrah than this. And, you know, this this had nothing to do with, you know, legends with with Hondo Kara character that they've established going off on his own mission. You know, like there was a clear story, Dark Horse had started telling that they could have finished, that they didn't wrap up in Legacy Volume 2, mind you. Uh, but I think that's my overall issue with this. Beyond that, though, I did like some of the little touches, like uh, the shuttle or ship that Han and... Uh, not Han, the shuttle that Leia and Luke steal is one of the ships that we see from the uh, Tor game, uh, from that era of ships and stuff. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, I did like the fact that even though the Rancor battle happened off-screen, that Chewie ripped its arm off, albeit with an axe... 
but that was kind of cool. I wish we could have seen it and stuff. That last panel, though, where we see the flash forward of the characters, I think without that, though, I think this would have been just a complete bot story all the way around. I mean, it it's literally only five panels, but those five panels do enough that gives me closure. It makes me have that that feeling of of connected dots that I love about the EU so much. So there are aspects about this that I find redeeming, even though there were enough about it with my own preconceptions going in that it was a run-of-the-mill story for me overall. I didn't enjoy the story. I, I think you're dead on with uh, the references to Buyer's Market. Uh, if you liked Buyer's Market, you'll like this. If you found Buyer's Market to be a pointless waste of your time, you're probably going to find the same with this. Um, you know, I, I love everything EU, so I can find aspects of this that are redeeming, that I can enjoy, and things like that. But for the most part, this one was a letdown for me. And when I think about it as one of the last things that Dark Horse put out, it was a real big letdown. I mean, you know, I, 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 as I said at the beginning, I wanted Dark Horse to go out with a bang. I wanted something of meaning. I wanted something to tell the fans that are only fans of the movies and only fans of George Lucas's stuff. Look at this and shut up. You know, and that's what I wanted. Didn't get it. Instead, we got something else that justified the fact that, you know, the EU didn't always tell great stories. And that's something going forward that, you know, I hope that they keep that in mind as they tell stories going forward. I do not want to see a rebooted era where anything is possible and them going back in and telling stupid stories that do not need to be told just because they can. Uh, so in that regard, you know, I'm, I'm happy that this takes place in Legends and it isn't set in the other stuff. I, I'm with you. It may have been better knowing that it was in the other continuity, knowing that these characters may have shown back up again. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, it is what it is. So, you know, that's that's where I'm at. I would have to say if I if I had to score this one, I would say it's an average one. I, I wouldn't go, uh, you know, it's no A plus, it's no D minus, but it's definitely an average story. It's run of the mill. Yeah, if I were to use uh, a letter grading system, uh, including D's, which we don't actually have in Georgia. In Georgia, if you don't hit a 70, you failed. Um I would say, I guess, that the first issue to me was a D, the second issue was a C, the third issue another D, and the fourth issue possibly a B. Uh, broadly speaking, I don't think that the series wound up getting a passing grade, so to speak, um, unless we allow that last two pages that give it some measure of relevance to push it into like the absolute lowest possible level uh, within the C range, uh, that it's slightly below average, but not completely pointless. Those last two pages, with the power set up uh, for Hoth and the relevance brought to you know the the Bothan character seeing the Death Star plans and such for the Death Star two, uh, those add a relevance that the rest of it did not. So I don't think we can necessarily call this series pointless, but we can certainly call it unnecessary and broadly speaking in my opinion mm -hmm. not particularly good so yeah if if you're someone out there who must read all star wars stories like i am with the timeline gold and everything then yeah you're going to read this regardless of what we say just kind of heed that warning not to expect too much if you're someone out there who does pick and choose what star wars stories you bother to read this is definitely one you can skip spending the time and the money on it you're not going to get much out of it now, moving into covers, we have three covers per issue on this. Uh, sounds like a lot, but we were able to actually go over them real fast. You basically got a variant cover by Matt Kind himself, 
uh, which, you know, I'll throw that out there right now. I didn't really care for his covers. Uh, and then Adam Hughes does two other covers. He's got a standard cover, which is the ones that I have for the most part, and then a ultra variant cover, which is basically that same cover in its penciled version. Uh, so the first one has got Han Solo, the, the version I have, the uh, regular one, has got Han Solo. He's got this really cool, like, strike a pose with the blaster up with his right hand out. I, I like these covers. They were the ones I was aiming for. Number three is the one I did not get in this one. I've got the variant by Matt. Uh, but I really like the styling of these. I like the the way there's a black line going around Han Solo. And, and for the most part, all the characters in that regard, they've got this little black line tracing them. I really like that. I think that adds for a really cool effect. And, and I think that they should be able to uh, make that image pop out and use it for other things down the road. I think that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I really like that one. The uh, variant cover has like this folded newspaper, old painted look to it, like kind of like, you know, this is like some secret the rebels are passing around kind of thing. And they're all like that. Uh, but this one, it's got Han on the cover and it's got a blue twilight kind of leaning up on him. It looks like he's got like a medallion around his neck or she's handing him something. Can't quite really tell. But it's got like a water pastel painted look to it. And I, I don't know. I mean, that could be your cup of joe. That one just it really turned me off, so I tried to avoid that one with a passion. Uh, when we get to the second one, it is Leia. Probably one of my favorite covers of them all. Uh, Leia's got that the white outfit that she was wearing on the other one. There's some stormtroopers behind her and stuff. Uh, but the wording on the first one, I'm sorry, it said, uh, follow my lead and you might just get out alive. And of course... The other cool thing about these is there are actually lines that the characters are saying inside the comic. Leia goes, all you need to do at this point is cover me. And I like the pose that she's got. She's got one hand on her hip and she's got like her uh, right leg kind of kicked out with the blaster pointed up. A very uh, action pose. Uh, same thing with the ultraviolet cover. It's just that in pencils. So we're really not, there's no need to go over the ultra variants. They're literally just pencils of the standard covers by Adam Hughes. The variant that Matt did on this one uh, has a very, oh... Jeez, I can't think of the movie. 1920s kind of feel. Uh, oh, the big, no, not the big Lebowski. Uh, the Great Gatsby. <laughs> Way different movies there. Uh, it has a Great Gatsby kind of feel to it with Leia sitting in a white dress, like in a, a white chair or maybe even a, a, a bean bag or something or a chair that's got a white cover on it. And it looks like she's at like a formal party with people behind her from, you know, the image I have. Could be a guy in an Imperial costume. Not quite sure on that one. Into uh, episode three, issue three. This is the one that I have the variant of. I wish I would have got the standard cover by Adam Hughes of Chewbacca there. Uh, I like the ships and stuff in the background. I really like the poses of those ones. It's just the full character within a bunch of stuff in the background and, and the top part's all white. Um, so in that one, I don't know what the words say because I don't have that one. And the cover that they have in that I'm using to look at is just blank at the top. Oh, maybe it would have said or something like that. Uh, but on the variant cover, it's got come and fight. It's got Chewie kind of doing one of those uh, World War II or World War One charging uh, images. He's got his bandolier held up with his left hand. And he's like, come on, with his right hand up over his head. You can see troopers in the background charging. But again, it's got that folded thing. Like The folded thing I think I enjoy the most It's just the painted style I don't really care for. It's a style. It's just not my cup of joe. Uh, into the fourth one. I'm just a concerned citizen, says Luke. And he's got a really cool pose with the blade coming down from his left over his right shoulder. Um, and it's got the X-Wings and stuff with Kenobi and Vader on the background. A little weird seeing Kenobi and Vader on there because they really have nothing to do with anything in the comic. Uh, and 3PO's eyes are there and he doesn't really have anything to do with it. But again, I like the imagery that it's producing and the way it's uh, handing itself out to me. When you get to the variant on that one, I 
think that's the worst one of them all for me. I really can't stand it. Uh, it looks very high school project to me. Uh, it's got Luke with the lightsaber held up over his hand with his right hand with the blade ignited over his head. And I, I think there might be X-Wings flying above him or just some really scraped up clouds. It's really hard to say. But I think of all the variant covers, that one's probably the one that just really falls short. Yeah, ironically, the ones that I like the most of these are the Adam Hughes covers. So, of course, when I pre-ordered them, I thought, hey, it's cool that they're going to have the guy that did the writing also do the cover art. I'll get those. So I've got all the Matt Kent variants here. Um, I personally do like the, the way that they did the covers for the Adam Hughes ones. Where you got the action in the background, you got the main character pose going on, and the little quote. And yes, you're right. Actually, uh, number three, the Chewbacca one, is a kind of of quote. That's all that it is. Oh, nice. Um, and I mean, I just I like the way they did that, and the fact that you can sort of cut out the characters because that's how they made the trade paperback cover. They yeah. took the characters and cut them out and just put them together in a scene to make the trade paperback cover. Um, kind of like there is a thirteenth variant out there of number one from Phoenix Comic Con that's basically the Adam Hughes cover of Han, except it doesn't have the background stuff. It just has Han with a white background. Um, personally, I like those. I like the look of them. I like the fact that they're using real quotes from the inside, because a lot of times we've sort of joked about what they say on the covers, and in this case, they're actual quotes from the issues, which is really cool. Uh, as to the variant covers by Kent, the ones that I have in front of me, they're all right. Uh, they all have a very different feel to them. Um... The first one with Han with the Twi'lek, of course, it's kind of the, where's this coming from? That's certainly not a scene within anything, and she's admiring the medallion and everything. It says, earn the admiration of the galaxy on it. So these do not have quotes from the issues. They have just kind of odd phrases for them. Uh, I'd say Han looks more like Han on the cover of this than he does anywhere on the inside of the issue. And I find it interesting that that number one for Rebel Heist doesn't say Rebel Heist anywhere on the cover on the, the Kent version. It just has a red Star Wars logo and Han and the Twi'lek. Nowhere does it say Rebel Heist, which is probably a bit of an oversight on their part. <laughs> um, then you have number two, uh, definitely, like he was saying, it's sort of a great Gatsby kind of feel to it with Leia sitting there on the couch. Uh, Careless talk costs lives, uh, which is true. I think loose lips sink ships and all. Except saying careless talk costs lives. I know that's meant to be sort of a reference back to the world wars and that kind of theme. Um, but being someone who grew up in the 80s, who was a big fan of Billy Joel for many years, I can't help but hear that careless talk. And that's what they say about me. Careless talk. <laughs> talking, talking, talking kind of stuff going on in my back in the back of my head from, gosh, I don't know, innocent man, maybe back in the 80s. Um, but that one works. I mean, it's kind of odd. It almost makes Leia appear like she's sort of Gumby. You know, because the, the lines are a little bit odd, the way that they've drawn her back and such, as if she's kind of one big curve, but whatever. Um, the Chewbacca cover for the third one, come on and fight! You know, decent enough, uh, a lot of rushed line kind of looks to it, but I think that's kind of the point of how they put it together. Really, the one that's, that stands out to me that bothers me is number four, the one that you said was sort of like a, was like a high school project, because it's Luke here, he's got the lightsaber above his head, he doesn't really look much like himself. He looks like the way he would have looked maybe in an old 1980s Marvel comic, perhaps. It says underneath, it is your destiny. And it's got the N in destiny backwards. 
um, which for those who are familiar with Cyrillic is a different letter. That's not an N anymore. It's an E in Cyrillic, uh, like Russian, for instance. Uh, it's got a star in the R in your, which makes me think these are like recruitment posters they're trying to go with here. But it just looks a little different than the rest of them because the rest of them have that yellow sort of old paper, you know, old comic book type background color going on. Whereas in this case, because he's got the sky behind him, it's a lot of blue behind him. So it just doesn't look like it fits with the rest of them in terms of the color scheme. The art style, yes, but the color scheme, no. So for these to feel like a unified whole, that kind of detracts from it, whereas the regular covers do look like a unified style of a unified whole. Uh, so much would have preferred the Hughes covers, but I think there is something to be said for a chance in Star Wars to not just have the writer write, but to have the writer who also apparently is an artist, so to speak. Um, I, I use the term somewhat loosely because these aren't exactly great covers, but certainly better than I could do. Um, also doing the cover art. I thought that was kind of a cool thing for them to do because it doesn't happen very often. So kudos to them for taking that chance on those variants. True. I, I'll give you that. I mean, it, it is something that you don't see that often, and it is way better than anything I could do. I mean, I think that's something that most people got to keep in mind going in. You know, I may complain about art a lot, but I got to give props to props to do, and these guys are still doing better than what I could do. Um, you know, I do like the fact that with the trade paperback, that the way they cut them out and lined them up worked really well. That was kind of cool. When I was talking about that, I didn't realize that was the case at the time. So that was nice as well. <laughs> Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com from our sponsors to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that maybe we saved some Star Wars readers some money with this issue. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you got it on a uh, Humble Bumble. Humble Bumble? Humble Bumble? Humble Bumble? A Bumblebee? www.starwarsreport.com Oh, shoot, that was... Episodes can also be found on iTunes. 
Hey, everybody. You know, well, let me say that again. Not a phone. Which kind of stinks because, I mean, we're dealing with something that's sourced. Stop it. I'm about to have to lock the fucking cats in the bathroom. The problem is if I do that, they're going to meow the entire time. Yeah, you're going to hear that. <laughs> Let's try it again. I don't even know what the fuck I was saying. What was I even saying? You were talking oh, about the, the, books, the yeah. sales. Yeah. Jan, Saren, the storm. Tr- Shut up, cat. God dang. <laughs> <laughs>